Hello and welcome to Time in the Market, an Invesco podcast series for UK professional investors. I'm Ben Gutteridge, your host, a failed TV celebrity desperate for a bit of attention, but also an investment director from within Invesco's multi-asset strategies division. In this series, we'll be interviewing some of the highest profile names from in and around the financial industry and from both within and without Invesco. But before the action begins, we want to stress this interview should not be considered as investment advice and remind you that any capital invested is always capital at risk. Finally, we would encourage you to listen to some further important information immediately following the interview. Thank you and on with the show. Hello, everyone, and a very warm welcome to the latest Time in the Market podcast, where this month we discuss whether investing in European equities is something worth doing. And here to offer, I presume, a positive view, we're delighted to welcome a highly respected European equity fund manager, a thought leader, a media star and a heartthrob. It's Invesco's Oliver Collin. Oliver, welcome back to the podcast. How are you? I'm good. Thank you, Ben. And thanks for that introduction. (laughs) Throwing you a bit off guard with that, I think. Okay, but look, great. Thanks for thanks for being with us. Always enjoy our chats, though uh, things are a little different this time. In a moment, we'll have that sort of usual lively debate about the appeal of European equities, looking at economic health, uh, you know, the policy backdrop, valuations, the influence of China, and where you're seeing uh, the most interesting investment opportunities as well, of course. But before all that good stuff. We open with our hotly anticipated defer or prefer round. Ten quickfire questions to understand a little bit more about you as an investor, Ollie, but also a person. Does that sound okay? Yep. All good. Okay, great. Well, it's just it's just a bit of potentially career-ending fun. Nothing, nothing more to it than that. So a quick reminder, ten quick questions. You just tell us which one you prefer, uh, or if it's really too tricky, you can defer. Right, let's go. Number one, European equity fund management or being chased by rabid dogs? <laughs> yeah. The former. Okay. European equities or US equities? European equities. Technology or insurance? Oh, that's a good one. Uh, right here, insurance. AI or the energy transition? Oh, you've thought about these today. Um, uh, I always think about them. Uh, energy transition. Banks or energy? Energy. Valuation or earnings growth? Valuation. Utilities or luxury? Mm, utilities. Eurovision or Strictly Come Dancing? Strictly Come Dancing. Marbella or Nice? Oh, Nice. Just for laughs or just for men? If you've seen my photograph, um, (laughs) it has to be the answer. Okay, well, look, brilliant. Very nicely done, Ollie. And thank you for being such a good sport. You know, I'm pretty aligned with you on that final answer. You've seen my photo, but that's that's the subject for my male grooming podcast uh, and not for today. We'll return today to the subject of the appeal of European equities. And whilst you catch your breath, I might begin by suggesting like UK professional investors, you can counter this, of course, but I, I would imagine UK professional investors are, are on balance a bit sceptical about the asset class. I know there's balls out there, but I think they're in the minorities. But before we get into the weeds, on that basis, Ollie, could you just sort of give us like a tight elevator pitch as to why you think European equities are worth a closer look? Yeah, no problem. Look, you're, you're right. Um, whether we're talking about just UK or I think global investors, Europe is unloved. Um, I think that's demonstrable in terms of the valuation of the region and the flows to the region or rather out of the region. And there's good reason for that scepticism. Real growth, real earnings growth, German recession, the Ukraine war, energy concerns, etc. So there's a plethora of reasons why one should be, and it's logical to be concerned. But I think there are a couple of things to highlight. 
one is that has been the case for some time. And, and if we were having this podcast this time last year, we'd be saying exactly the same thing about Europe. And, and it's notable, and I think people should be aware of it, that Europe's the best performing equity market this year. I'm cheating by saying that because everyone's rightly thinking, well, hold on, the Nasdaq's been amazing. But the Nasdaq's been amazing and the, and the US market's been amazing because of seven companies. And if, if you take those out, then the US is flat and Europe is up without those businesses. So there's something to be said there or noted there. And I think the notable point is that the reason for that performance is things weren't as bad as people were anticipating. And I feel that we're probably in a similar position now that there are things out there that are rightly concerning people. But if they are likely not to be as bad as the fear and and the result will be good equity performance. The starting point is valuations are compelling. The politics is as good as it's been, I think, in my 25 years of looking at this market. There's more cohesion in the European policy setting. And I think the key, key point is that the financing conditions are better. Strange thing to say when interest rates are rising, but Europe is financed by the banks. And in a post-GFC world where banks have no capital, are doing rights issues and are having regulatory forbearance, well, that's a bad backdrop to fund Europe. We don't have the capital market reliance that the US market has, for example. Well, now, if you think about the banking situation, we're overcapitalized. We've got excess liquidity and the quality of the underwriting's improved, which means that we've got a condition to be able to finance growth on a forward-looking basis. So those conditions, I think, are markedly different. And the starting point is hesitation and concern. Well, that is a, a fascinating angle. Yeah, I wouldn't have thought, as you, as you said in your own answer, that uh, the funding conditions in, in Europe uh, are that much better than we would have anticipated. You, you sort of talk about valuations in Europe. I know these things can sort of be cut and sliced in lots of different ways, uh, but could you sort of qualify that for us a bit? How would you assess the valuation to be of appeal in European equities? Yeah, OK. And I'll, I'll take a step back a little bit. And apologies, because this is maybe oversimplifying. But a share price... I, I, I delight those. I, I delight in those types of answers, Ollie. <laughs> Go for it. Good. Well, look, in terms of a share price, it's a function of the earnings and the multiple you're putting on those earnings. So if we break down the risk into those two buckets, earnings expectations for Europe into 2024 are 5% growth. Normally, and virtually every year, expectations for the year ahead are 10% earnings growth. And typically, Europe then sees various things impacting it, whether it's energy, whether it's government, politics, interest rates, whatever it is, and those earnings expectations get cut down to probably nearer 5%. So this year, the starting point is compelling. To put that into context, US growth expectations for 24 are probably nearer 15%, three times that. But when you break out that super seven tech stocks, where the growth expectations are more like 40%, then the residual of the US market is similarly only 5%. Now, the point there is, I think that sounds okay. It might be a bit higher, it might be a bit lower, but I don't think the distance that we end up is going to be markedly away from that 5%. So the point is, the driver of European equities is not going to be earnings into 2024, which comes to the next point, which is multiple. The equity multiple has to be a function of the risk-free rate. It has to be. And without getting into the weeds, the current multiple of Europe being 13 times means that there's still a significant equity risk premium in European markets. The difference between the earnings yield of equities and the bond yield, it's around about four or 500 basis points. So there's still a big premium in there. 
Now, if you believe what I've said about European politics, the European financing, then there's the chances for the equity risk premium to come down, because at the moment, it's the highest it's been on a 20-year basis. And so it's that equity risk premium reducing that means that you can get at market level an improved multiple. To give some context to that, the same equity risk premium calculation in the US is zero. So that's telling you, in my opinion, that we front-loaded European share price performance because there's no equity risk premium. And therefore, whatever happens to interest rates from here, it's going to be hard to get that multiple higher. And that, for me, gives an underpinning of value support for the European market. Yeah, I mean, I saw a couple of things in there. I mean, because, you know, that, that earnings would have less of an impact on European equities in the coming year is sort of reasonable. But I mean, I guess if we have a recession, that could be undermined to the downside. But we could talk about that in a moment. But just on the point about like an equity risk premium, so that equities are cheap or there is a valuation appeal in equities versus bonds, I would have thought that's just like the reasonable position for Europe. That would be like the sort of neutral position because you think about European economy as being sort of maybe structurally sort of lower growth. You can challenge that as well. But lower growth means put some richness into the price of bonds and weighs on the price of equities. So I wouldn't necessarily shout about an equity risk premium of being having some appeal in Europe. But how, how would you challenge that? Well, I challenge it by the fact that all of the things that we've talked about, about Europe and challenges to Europe as a region, the politics, the growth, the earnings momentum have been there for a decade. We had a GFC and then a euro crisis and people questioned the sustainability of Europe at all. And what I believe is that when the equity risk premium is higher than the last 20 years, that suggests to me that we are overemphasizing those risks on a forward-looking basis, given those risks have abated. So for me, I agree with your sentiment, but I also believe strongly that the starting point today is cheapness, and it's cheapness relative to bonds. And across other asset classes, that is not the case. Well, maybe like one of the problems, say a cyclical or a current problem that Europe has, is that its economy and market is more closely aligned to the fortunes of the manufacturing segments of the economy. And it's that part of the global economy that remains weak. So again, that might suggest there's not much, quite such appeal in European equities. I mean, do you think that's fair, unfair? No, I think I think that's I think that's really fair. And I think, you know, I should have probably mentioned that in the opening comments about Europe and the challenges that actually Europe is a pretty much a 50-50 economy, 50% services and 50% manufacturing. But then within there, you go to countries like Germany, where there's a much more manufacturing bent. And that's been such a golden goose within the region for so many years, that when that starts to roll over, that questions even Germany's poor, therefore the whole region has to be poor. So I completely understand the sentiment and the question. But there is a but here. The but is that manufacturing in Europe has been weak now for 12 months. In terms of the manufacturing PMIs, they've been sub 50 for a year, but they've been sub 45, which is really where economists believe that you get into recession territory for around about six months. So you're right, manufacturing is, is distressed. But, and the big but is that a lot of that has been caused not just by the underlying um, output, but it's been caused by an inventory destocking cycle with the inflationary impulse on the back of COVID accelerated because of the energy crisis. That leads to a level of stocking building up. And of course, as prices roll over and the energy prices abate and gas prices obviously come down by 
you know, a, a factor of four or more. Well, that leads to the exact opposite function. And, and we believe that the destocking effect has pretty much come to an end with the third quarter. And that leads to that additional pressure on the manufacturing part of the economy easing. That's not to say we think manufacturing is going to be amazing from here, but we think it's not going to be incrementally worse from here in a European context. And then when we take the valuations of the manufacturing related companies, which are themselves cheap, they're cheap at trough. And that's a really opportunistic and an attractive proposition for investors, we believe. OK, so I, my questions have been a bit pointy so far on the bearish side. This is the last one of this kind. So thanks for dealing with it so kindly, Ollie. But uh, it relates to sort of the European trading relationship with China and our sort of assumption that that's pretty firmly integrated relative to other economies. And on that basis, we sort of still feel a bit nervous about China, don't we? I mean, it doesn't sound obvious that there's a, an impressive turnaround underway there. I mean, as you sort of pointed to, like Germany seems looking relatively weak at the moment. Again, that would be something to do with that manufacturing trading relationship. So with no signs of an immediate turnaround in China, is that sort of weighing in your, on your enthusiasm for the markets? Uh, no. And the simple answer to that is, I don't think we should be reliant or expecting a Chinese-led recovery. We have long felt, and we being broader than the European team, but colleagues of mine across the business, that the Chinese economy is evolving. It's evolving from an industrial manufacturing economy into a consumer economy. And therefore, the expectations out there of some form of government impulse, some fiscal impulse to be supportive is going to be much more aligned to supporting the financial situation in the real estate market, supporting as opposed to growing. And therefore, we shouldn't expect to see the level of capital investment in the region, in China, that we saw basically since 2000, when China joined the WTO. That's a market change. That doesn't mean industrials, manufacturers are broken businesses and don't have a future. And the reason for that being that we think the investment cycle that's been an offshore investment cycle for European businesses is moving to an onshore investment cycle. That onshore investment cycle is a function of the need for Europe to retool. And that retooling is a function of energy independence, the green agenda, and the onshoring reshoring as a function of more stressed global politics. As you see that domestic investment cycle pick up, the types of businesses that are going to be beneficiaries of that, the likes of a Sangaban, which is a renovation story, or maybe a Siemens, which is an industrial manufacturing and low energy transition story, those types of companies are going to benefit on a multi-year view, but from a domestic investment cycle. And that domestic investment cycle will make some of these cyclicals in a really blue sky backdrop look more like secular growth stories. OK, well, thanks for that, Ollie. I do want to pivot to learning more about which investments are of appeal to you. But before we get into that, just to sort of round out a conversation, really, just interested to know what condition you think the consumer is in in Europe. Much is sort of talked about in the US about, you know, low levels of unemployment, higher or depleting levels of savings. It's been great for the consumer. What condition is, is Europe, uh, Europe's consumers in? I think surprisingly, and surprisingly on the basis of the interest rate moves we've had, and the inflation we've had, goods inflation we've had, surprisingly in a good state. There's a reason for that. One is, like the US, the savings rate's high. Households have termed out their liabilities, so their mortgages are long-term liabilities, whereas their savings are short-term assets, meaning they're getting the uplift from the interest rate cycle. 
you've said that unemployment's low, so people have got jobs, and and the people with jobs are getting mid single digit wage increases. And remember, European wages are a lagging indicator rather than like in the US, a leading indicator. So that wage growth is still coming through, having been lagging for one year. And with inflation coming from ultra high levels in modern parlance to more reasonable levels of inflation. So those incomes are actually in real terms starting to be at least neutral and maybe positive. So the consumer is in a reasonably healthy state. And that means the economy in general terms, both this side of the Atlantic, Europe and and in the US, is doing okay. I think that's a really important subsection of the question, though, and, and it leads back to this manufacturing versus consumer versus the services side of the economy. Europe is a two speed economy currently, abnormally so, meaning manufacturing is probably in recession and services and consumption is still in growth. We and it maybe gets on to talk about some stocks and some positioning. But we feel that the outcomes from here are one of two things, a soft landing where the consumer continues to be relatively robust and the interest rate policy, they feather that perfectly. So we get a soft landing or in a more adverse backdrop, a hard landing. In a soft landing, the consumer stays resilient, but the manufacturing picks up. In that backdrop, I want to own the manufacturing businesses, the recovery. In a hard landing, It's going to be driven by the part of the economy that's thus far holding up the consumer. It'll be led by interest rates breaking the economy, leading to unemployment, and the consumer rolls over. So I want to be wary of owning those higher multiple consumer-related earnings and hiding in some of the unloved, cheaper parts of the market, ironically, the manufacturing and industrial. So the answer to what's manufacturing, what's industrial, I think the outcome of what you want to own depends on how bullish you want to be. Bullish, you want to own the cyclical recovery. Bearish, you don't want to own the consumer, which means you're effectively hiding in some of those cyclical businesses. Now, as always, you give very sort of thoughtful, detailed answers. But if, if let's say, for whatever reason, I hadn't been listening to those, of course, that wouldn't be the case with the audience. If I were to ask you, what are you investing in in Europe? You know, I would first ask about these great companies that are in amongst this sort of complicated region, you know, like Ferrari, LVMH, ASML, these amazing businesses. Is that where you're looking? Look, the first answer to the question is, or the first observation to the question is, they are great businesses. They are excellent assets. They're high returning, monopolistic, great barriers to entry, awesome companies. And I don't own any of the ones you've mentioned. Why don't I own any of the ones you've mentioned? Because they're highly valued. And because I don't believe, we don't believe as a team, that the drivers of those share prices from here are a function of the companies themselves. We think it's a function of the environment that they're operating in rather than at the destiny they're in businesses. Why? Because they're already managed to perfection. We've had, helpfully, given the timing of this podcast, LVMH, and ASML's results. Both those companies have had small misses, LV in terms of the growth, ASML in terms of the order intake, and both of them are having adverse impacts on the share prices. It's not because any of the things you say about the quality of the businesses is breached or broken. It's because in the context of a global economy, their growth is being impeded because of squeezes, whether that be to the Chinese economy or to whether they're clamping down on corruption in the region, and that's putting a fear of some of the expenditure in the luxury space, or indeed in terms of the semiconductor cycle starting to squeeze in terms of the manufacturing capacity that's out there, and people therefore starting to reduce 
being at the back of the queue of the order intake for that business. But on either side, we feel not that there's operational risk as such, but if a small misses to the P&Ls of those businesses or the order intakes can have disproportionate impact to the valuation those companies are trading on. And it's that valuation versus what bond yields are that we're most concerned about. So the valuation risk of those businesses, not the operating risk of those businesses. Okay, all very fair. Now, on that basis, we'll pivot to sort of what, what you do like. But I would ask you sort of caveat. I do want to ask you about any investments you're considering or playing in relation to the green transition. Also want to ask you about sort of banks or the financial sector, banks insurance. So if you can park those outside of that, what areas of the market are you, are you keen on? Okay, so hopefully in the context of what we've talked about already, what I'm not giving a positive message on is, look, there's great big earnings surprises out there in any parts of the economy. And I also haven't really talked about, but I would say that we don't think there's a huge interest rate volatility from here either. I don't think we've got a view that interest rates go much higher. I think we've probably got a stronger and and differentiated view that interest rates don't come rattling back down again. And that's important because going back to the points I was making at the beginning, those aren't going to be big drivers. It's not earnings driving and it's not going to be a mega change to interest rates, which allows equities to breach atmospheric pressure and escape velocity like we had in negative rate territory. What that means is the drivers of your equity returns are going to be a bit different in the forward looking basis versus what we've been used to in the last decade or so. And that means it's going to be more idiosyncratic returns and less factor based returns. And it's probably going to be more income as a proportion of your equity return than capital growth as a percentage of your return, because it's complicated and that will impede the world is more complicated. Earnings expectations forecasting is complicated. That makes it more difficult. And with all that in mind, what I want to own and what we're looking for as a team is businesses that have positive individual stock-specific surprise risk, idiosyncratic risk, alpha versus beta. And where we're trying to find that is across a broad number of sectors, because this sort of intrinsic opportunity is available in all sectors. It's not that you have to go to consumer durables or you have to be in manufacturing or you mentioned financials. It can happen in any of these sectors. And and, and examples of that might be a utility, a Portuguese utility, EDP, which has been uninvestable for large parts of the market because it's got some coal-powered production. Well, it's converting the remaining coal plant into a gas-fired plant, and by 2030, we'll have zero hydrocarbon power generation. It will be a pure renewable player. That's incredibly exciting in terms of the opportunity for new people to invest in it, but it also means that because of that renewable expansion, the retooling that I mentioned, and you know the green transition, that also means that a utility has a growth opportunity. It can continue to invest and get a return on that investment and drive earnings growth. That, for me, is a really interesting opportunity to invest in. Going to a completely different part of the market, Axo Nobel, which is a, in inverted commas, boring paint business, paint is in structural decline because the paint quality is going up. So the story there is you don't have to paint your house every couple of years. You can paint it every five years because the technology in the paint goes up. As the technology in the paint goes up, that means the pricing of the paint goes up. That's the story. It's about consolidating the market and becoming the leading player in that space. But also, by consolidating the market, you consolidate lots of different paint manufacturers, and all of those paint manufacturers have different formulations for making simple white paint. If you can consolidate all those paints into one process, you can consolidate those factories, 
cut factories and improve returns as a consequence. Meanwhile, there's a short-term tailwind to that industry because of the rampant input inflation is rolling over to input deflation, and therefore you're getting margin expansion without needing to be reliant on top-line growth, plus the consolidation of the asset base to improve returns. It's stock-specific, it's sector-specific, it's industry-specific. And it's those types of ideas that we want to be taking advantage of at really interesting valuations, meaning we're not taking valuation risk. They're the types of areas we want to invest. Well, great. That's, as always, Oli, a nice sort of thorough uh, answer. You sort of touched on the green transition there. I don't know if there's any other areas you wanted to sort of talk about that might be sort of penetrating your portfolio. The bit about the green transition I think is in- important is the green transition, the key, key, key part of it is, yes, there's a domestic investment story because the green transition is happening in Europe. I mentioned that versus China. But the other point is, who does the work? The people that implement the green transition are the blue collar workers in the European region. This is the part of the economy that was hollowed out as we were offshoring all our industrial manufacturing capacity to the Far East and China over the last decade or two decades. So the types of people that are implementing the green transition, building the roads, building the electrification, putting in the smart meters at people's homes and the smart chargers for cars, et cetera, those are blue collar jobs. If you get that blue collar job momentum in the region, that leads to the current levels of low employment being sustainable. That leads to a continual wage cycle. That leads to continual domestic consumption. And that means that the European economy is driven by domestic consumption, domestic investment, and not wholly reliant on X minus N, the exports to the Chinese region, which was the only part of the economy that was driving the GDP post-GFC. So short of just thinking green transition means directly invest in industrial businesses that are implementing and renewable energy providers, it actually means that you can invest in a domestic economic story which means the plethora of different businesses that we've got to invest in is far broader than just green transition. I did promise our audience, because I I do think that uh, investors are always thinking about what's happening in the European banking sector and whether that's an area of interest for you to invest in. I know in the past you've had a sort of preference for the insurance part of the market. How are you feeling about those two segments? So, yeah, I'll be quick. Look, banks and financials more generally, given our backdrop is that we think interest rates stay higher for longer than anticipated, then anything that's a beneficiary of higher interest rates, and banks obviously are, is interesting to us. And therefore, we do have exposure to banks still, very much so. We're neutral banks, not because we're concerned about them per se. We are concerned that of the regulatory and the political backdrop. Nobody loses elections by being negative banks. Nobody loses an election by putting a windfall tax on a bank. We've got discussions going on at European level in terms of technicalities about reserve levels at the ECB level. That is all earnings impactful and sentiment impactful. And that means that whilst we're positive on the valuations, positive on the interest rate backdrop, we need to be aware of a curveball impacting sentiment and the multiples that these companies trade on. And so I'm very personally aware of that risk. And so at best being neutral banks relative to benchmark rather than overweight. But that's trying to measure the return potential and the risk potential and ending up in a neutral position. 
I don't feel I'm taking that same level of risk with insurance. I think insurance is a relatively defensive sector. But it has to be said, I've said that before, and the good news is they've been performing. And so the opportunity set within the insurance space is not as good as it was before. And, you know, that's a good problem to have because it means we're sitting on profits. But the opportunity of the asset class is a function of the business models times the multiple, and and the multiples have moved up somewhat. Okay, um, well... Congratulations on having that problem to deal with, Ollie. Congratulations on such a fine contribution to this podcast. I could easily keep going, such is the fun I'm having, but uh, we're out of time, I'm afraid. Thank you so much for joining us. Really enjoyed the conversation as always. If our audience want to hear more from Ollie, then please get in touch with your Investco Relationship Manager. He'll be only ha- too happy to help with that uh, request. But other than that, uh, you know, a huge thank you, Ollie, for being with us. Our biggest thanks, of course, to our audience for joining us. And we hope you can join us next month for our next Time in the Market podcast. Uh, But other than that, from Ollie and I, goodbye. Listeners should be aware of the following investment risks. The value of investments and any income will fluctuate. This may partly be the result of exchange rate fluctuations, and investors may not get back the full amount invested. Other important information for listeners. This podcast is intended for UK professional clients only and is not for consumer use. Views and opinions are based on current market conditions and are subject to change. This is marketing material and not financial advice. It is not intended as a recommendation to buy or sell any particular asset class security or strategy. Regulatory requirements that require impartiality of investment or investment strategy recommendations are therefore not applicable, nor are any prohibitions to trade before publication. Issued by Invesco Asset Management Limited, Perpetual Park, Petrol Park Drive, Henley-on-Thames, Oxfordshire, RG91HH, UK. Authorised and regulated by the Financial Conduct Authority.